Hello there, I'm Carly Deering and this is Off The Beatle Track, the podcast where I talk to those with unique perspectives and fresh approaches to the Beatles, their history and legacy. In today's episode, it was my great pleasure to speak to Colin Hall, who has been the custodian of Mendip's, John Lennon's childhood home for almost 20 years. As part of this role, Colin and his wife Sylvia lived at Mendips for some time and have shown around guests including Yoko Ono Lennon, Bob Dylan, Astrid Kircher and Klaus Vormann, along with thousands of others from all over the world. As if this wasn't enough, Colin has written two Beatles-based publications, The Songs the Beatles Gave Away, where he conducted interviews with Sir Paul McCartney and Sir George Martin, among others, which started out as a BBC Radio 2 documentary and Prefab, which was written in partnership with original Quarrymen drummer Colin Hanton and has just been made into a feature-length documentary by Stars North Films and selected to open the 2022 Florida Film Festival. In 2006, Colin worked with friend and music broadcaster Bob Harris to help research and contribute to the award-winning BBC Two radio documentary The Day John Met Paul. Colin has also found time to have a career as a teacher, has managed bands and been a music journalist. It was a real treat to speak to Colin and hear his unique experiences and I'm truly grateful for his time. As always, if you enjoy this episode, subscribe, leave a review or get in touch via my website offthebeetletrackpod.com. Enjoy. Colin, it's a delight to speak to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Well, it's lovely to be here, Carly, and I'm, I'm honoured to, to actually be invited. Oh, well, thank you. Um, there's so much to talk about. But can we take you back to the beginning? What's your earliest memory of the Beatles? I think my earliest memory of the Beatles is, is um, on a trip back from the Norfolk Broads where I'd been with my school. And I was a younger teenager, very young, you know, just on the cusp of being a teenager. And some of the older lads on the bus uh, were waxing lyrical about the Mersey beat, the groups in Liverpool and the groups that they'd seen. And we younger lads hadn't really engaged with them. And they were coming out with these names of groups. And we younger lads were thinking, you know, the, the, these groups will never catch on, not with names like these, you know, and um, the Beatles, goodness gracious me, <laughs> you know, we were used to Cliff Richard and the Shadows and bands sounding like that. Uh, but these lads were convinced, they said, these are going to be the, the biggest thing ever. They're just phenomenal. And um, of course, it, it kind of caught our interest and they were bigger lads and so we thought they they must know something um and we investigated and of course we couldn't escape it in liverpool and the next thing we knew the beatles in particular but all the groups in liverpool um were the groups that we were following and they were making records and we were buying them in the shops or when we could afford them which wasn't that often but uh, that's what we were doing and we were staying up late on a sunday night to listen to Radio Luxembourg and our transistor radios, um, hoping our mums and dads didn't hear, trying to catch these elusive sounds that were were exciting. And of course, going to clubs as we got a little bit older and dance halls to, to hear the groups live, you know, pr- pr- presenting their music. Uh, I have to say the, the added attraction was that we were also becoming interested in girls. So um, you could go and have a dance, meet a girl, Never. We never met girls, but we always thought we were going to. (laughs) (laughs) But really, it was the groups that were driving, drawing us there. My friend, um, my friend Gary um, had formed a group school and I was helping him get gigs. I remember going one night down the cavern and meeting Bob Wooler and getting his group, uh, not Bob Wooler's group, my friend's group, (laughs) uh, a gig at the cavern. That's the way Bob worked it. Quite a lot of groups played the cabin without being paid because their first gig was always an audition, but it was great. And what a thing to do. And, um, of course, their their audition was to to support um, Lee Dorsey, who was a a well-known artist from the United States, great singer, 
working in a coal mine. And that was a fabulous night down the cavern for us. That's how I got into it, you know. Did you ever get to see the Beatles? I did see the Beatles. I was just that bit young to go the cavern when they were performing there. Um, but I did get to see them at the Empire in, in Liverpool in 64. Went there. I, I say see because that's what I did do. I had a ticket um, and I, I went to the Empire and I was deaf for two days. Yeah. After. I remember coming home from the, the, the Empire and thinking, I wonder if I permanently damaged my hearing. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was phenomenal. I've never, I, you know, I, I'll never forget that show. It was just a, an overwhelming sound, and it was all leading up to the appearance of the Beatles. Uh, Tommy quickly was on on the on the on the bill, and um, Mary Wells was on the bill from. United States, what a wonderful singer. And we actually did hear briefly some of Mary Well, the, the, the noise abated. I don't know whether that was because she was the only female singer on the on the bill, but it did abate. And of course, we all wanted to hear Mary because we were all getting into Tamla. The Beatles, in many ways, had introduced us to Tamla, uh, Tamla Motown. And uh, yeah, so it was a fabulous show, but wow, I, I I never heard them. That was my next question. Did you manage to appreciate any of the Beatles' musicianship? I assume not. No, I could see, you know, um, I could see, you could tell sort of what songs they were, you know, like when Paul points to his watch and says, you know, got to go sort of thing. They, they went into a Long Tall Sally and... Um, yeah, it was uh, it was round about hard days nightish time, and so the songs were from that era, from that from that period. So for me, that, that that you know, looking back, I'm pleased because I that was the quintessential Beatlemania time when they were dressed in those suits and the hairstyles. It was it was how I think people these days remember the Beatles, although. As kids growing up in Liverpool, we can remember them, you know, from photographs and what we we knew. They looked slightly different, but that was the that was the final hurrah of that Beatlemania before they kind of started to evolve into something different. So, how did you go from a young lad in the audience? Mm. to decades later becoming the custodian of Mendips. What was that journey? Well, I stayed with it and I mm. stayed a big fan of music. And even when the Beatles split up, uh, as, as one of them said, I think, when they were splitting up, well, you'll have four of us to follow now. Um, there wasn't much compensation, really, in a sure. way. Because we wanted that group, that, that, you know, we loved that group. But it was you know, what was good that they still continued to make music. But at any given time, I think we Beatle fans would have loved for them to get back together. But they still made amazing music, great records. Um, but, yeah, followed the music through throughout their solo careers, particularly John and, and Paul and, um, and, um, and George. But uh, years later, and many different lifetimes later I was managing um, a band and as well two bands actually one of which morphed into a singer-songwriter and I was coming to the end of my career as a teacher uh, I took early retirement and I just happened to be told by a very good friend that who were looking for somebody to look after John Lennon's house in Walton. Walton is where I grew up as a little boy in, in Liverpool in my early days. So I knew the, knew the village. And um, just for a lark, as Gregory would say, what larks, I, I uh, applied for it. And amazingly, just prior to applying for the, for the job, um, I'd been out to Germany 
to spend some time with Astrid and Klaus, in Klaus Vermin and Astrid Kirscher, uh, to interview them for a magazine. I was doing some extensive wow. uh, articles on about the two of them. So I'd spent quite some time out there, or, or should I say lengthy interviews with, uh, in Hamburg and down near Munich where um, Klaus lived. And um, so I, I applied. And I applied so late in the process because I, you know, clueless. I didn't know they needed a custodian. When the trust, I called the trust. They said, "Well, you'll have to get your letter in very, uh, very quickly, Mr. Hall, because it's Friday now, Friday evening, and the uh, applications close at nine o'clock on Monday." So I had Saturday basically to get it all in the post and done, which I did. But I, I hadn't got much time, you know, and um, and so I. I just wrote a covering letter and I didn't have time to put a, a particularly good CV together. So what I did was I sent the magazines that had just been published um, one after another Brilliant. Uh, with these. And Astrid and Klaus had both allowed me extensive, unlimited almost use of their photographs and uh, photo real drawings that Klaus did. So they, they had these beautiful black and white photos full magazine size and I sent those as my CV and I just said this is some of the work that I've been doing and <clears throat> I always think to this day that did the trick for me because I got an interview and then when I went to Mendips for one of the interviews because you had several interviews you had to get through one tranche of interviews and then it was like you were shortlisted and for the shortlist, you had to go to the house and be interviewed by um, your Colonel Lennon's advisors. And they took you around. To, in each room, as far as I remember, there was a different advisor. And in wow. one of the rooms, the dining room, there on the wall were a series of photographs depicting the story of the Beatles from Quarrymen to the Fab Four, as it were. And it was only a handful of photos. And at least four of those photographs were Astrid's. So, wow. bingo. <laughs> I, I, I was in, you know. I, I could tell them to the detail how Astrid had set those photographs up because she had told me. She said, these, these are posed photographs. They're not spontaneous. I, I told John to put his hands like this on the guitar and I moved his fingers and I moved his arm. You know, so... I had that amount of detail, plus I had a lot of childhood memories of Walt and myself simultaneous to John growing up there. I, I didn't realise it at the time, but that's what they were looking for. They weren't looking for somebody who particularly knew how many gold records the Beatles got or when they made help, or they were looking for the childhood memories. Mm. It, it all just fell into place for me, really. And you lived in there for a while? For about nine years, yeah. What was and, that like? Well, it was very special. I can't deny it. It was very special. You know, I hadn't been back to Walton in particular for, for a while. I'd studied at university in, in, in Liverpool, but not lived in Walton for, for a while. And it all came crashing back. Mm. It just, just did. But to come, they always say, don't go back, you know go back but this was not kind of going back to my home it was going back to John's home but it was to my where I grew up and so it was a unique way to go back and to live in that house where so much history and so much magic sadness as well it was a mixture of emotions for me both personal and also relating to John Lennon and it 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 enriched the story no end, I have to say. And to, to be thrust back into an environment where I was living in a 50s house. Wow, it's just incredible, I have to say. Uh, I, I can't deny it to, to, to not have television, to not have a computer and to of, live. Of course, it, you, you were living in the reconstructed 50s house. There wasn't like a little annex where you could go and have your modern home comforts. No, no, I mean, there was no television aerial and there was no computer access 
I mean, you could have your mobile and all of that, but I, I elected, my wife, Sylvia, who lived with me, um, we elected not to have modern conveniences because, mm. well, it, it did us good. <laughs> you know, we went back to getting our news in the newspaper and to reading books, just as John did. John was a fanatic, you know, he loved books. He'd have three, four books on the go at any one time. Um, and, um, you, you know... It, Part of his his great literary ability was from reading books. You know, he, he loved books, so it was it was inspiring. And um, you know, it's a bit silly to say, I suppose, but it brought me closer to John. And John had always been my my favorite Beatle. Was it a home that you you quickly relaxed in? Did it feel like your home, or were you very conscious of your surroundings? Well, it did feel like home, yes. I mean, obviously, we lived in the whole house. When people weren't there, we were allowed to occupy and use all of the rooms, provided the next morning when the public visited, they weren't aware that, you know, we'd had an all-night party. <laughs> um we we were under strict uh, instructions to make sure that when the house opened to the public, they were not aware of our presence, um, except the back room, upstairs bedroom was always locked because that's where we slept. We had to have somewhere where we could keep our things. So that was always locked. And that's where students had slept at, at the time. So it wasn't a, John, a, a room frequented by John. So um, we we had our things in there. But we could use the house, and um, and like John, we we tended to frequent the um, and, and Mimi, John, and Mimi and George. We frequented the morning room, the little room next to the kitchen, because that's where we'd have our meals, where we would listen to the radio. So it very quickly did feel like home. It's because we we were going there every night, you know, having our meals and. We did go back to our own house that we retained in, in Derbyshire where, where we brought our family up. But during our tenure at Mendips, we moved back to Mendips and bought a house where I'm talking to you now, just down from Mendips. But uh, for many years, I was just there on my own because my wife taught abroad um, before she came to work at Fortland. So it did feel like home. I, I I put roots down in Walton again because of Mendips. I've read that you've spent your time working there, collecting as many tiny fragments as you can about John's life in that house so that you can tell a fuller story. What has mm. that process been like? And where did you look to glean those bits of information? I know you've had some incredible guests yourself that you've shown around the house mm. that may have given you bits of information along the way. Well, members of his family, um, Paul, mm -hmm. you know, I met Paul. And, um, and magic happens, you know, or you just get gifted because people come to the house and they, they tell you things that um, that because they're there and they're they're excited by being back in the house they want to uh, um, they want to tell you something that they've remembered maybe they've not thought about it for eons for years and they, but they're suddenly there in the space again and the memory comes and then other times I will be in, you know told that John had a harmonica mark lewison will say to me john lennon had a harmonica um one of the students gave it to him so i will go on a on a search to find which harmonica what type of harmonica and see if i can find harmonica i'm not going to find john's harmonica or if if it's still there if it's still out there it'll be in a museum somewhere or some collector will have collected it and it'll be, you won't be able to buy it at a sensible price mm -hmm. but I will go and try and find locate something it, it, so for instance the Gallatone guitar that John Lennon played in the Quarrymen I was able to locate a Gallatone champion guitar from the same newspaper advert that John mm -hmm. and his mum 
purchased John's guitar and had sent to her house before he brought it to, to Mendips. I was able with a friend, a very good friend called Bob. He um, he located one. He said, Colin, it's mint condition and it's even got the carry case that they would have sold with it. It was a mail order thing from South Africa or made in South Africa. He said, it, we can't afford to let this go. It's over, over what it's worth. Mm. So the National Trust needed this guitar, but they hadn't got the money. <laughs> <laughs> so we negotiated, or Bob negotiated, and we got, got the guitar reduced in price because we never mentioned Mendips. <laughs> okay. So we got a genuine Galatone guitar, same make, same advert, just not sent to John Lennon. And um, and it's still there to this day. And it's now on display in the house. <laughs> so I'm very proud of that. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, so done, done things like that. But stories have come. Like Paul, I tried to you know occasionally bust myths, if you like. So when I first arrived, a lot of the guides outside the house would say oh john and, and the the outlaws his little gang had they'd climb over the back fence that you see at the back of the house leading into the gardens on vale road they'd climb over that fence or whatever was there in the day into the gardens of the houses on vale road and then they'd go through the gardens on vale road um and then over the or through the fence into the front gardens and then onto Vale Road to get to Strawberry Field. And that never rang true with me because Mimi wouldn't have allowed that if mm -hmm. she'd seen and the neighbours wouldn't have allowed it um, because these kids would be tramping through two gardens to get to Vale Road. And um, So Nigel Wally turns up at the house, John's friend, who was an outlaw. So what do you do? You say, Nigel, yeah. what, how did you get? to Strawberry Field, and he, he just put me right. He said, well, there was no fence, because John's was an end house. There was no garage, and there was just open land. There wasn't a proper fence, so we dug under the wire and cut across the open land mm. on the railroad. And this was at the side of the house, not at the back of the house. I think this is an important part of your job because you, within this role, you've been able to actually speak to the people who were there, many of the people who were there at the time. Yeah, and you you realise where the, the error comes from because they did climb the wall on Vale Road that's still there to get into Strawberry Field because they had to climb this wall to drop into the then extensive grounds. So there was some climbing involved, but... What it is, is that the story doesn't get finished off. You know, it doesn't get... And that's because people um, had not spent the time or, or the inclination because they weren't... The, the tours weren't on. So nobody had really bothered. I mean, when I first got there, there were different dates for the year of the uh, church fate. You know, I think, I think... I'm not sure, but one very famous book about the Beatles had got it down as 55 I think or 50 something earlier than what it was anyway mm. so that's one fantastic part of your well we'll get we'll get to your book in a second and um, there's mm. some in, very interesting myth busting parts of that too um mm. you've showed Yoko around Mendips she just dropped by one day as a surprise is that right she has dropped by mm. on, by surprise but usually there's a heads up what are, those, what are those experiences it's, like? What was it like showing her around for the first time? It, it was a wow moment. It was it was like, well, I wouldn't be here doing this job if it wasn't for Yoko and Lennon because it was Yoko who saw that the house was for sale and had the great idea, thought that, well, the National Trust have got Paul's. I wonder if I bought Mendips, they would accept it as a gift and open it to the public. And that's what she did. She didn't hesitate. And it was a gift. The National Trust bought Paul McCartney's house for themselves. They, they, they 
shelled out the money for that, but Yoko. And so this this was a very generous thing to do. People may say, oh, she's got lots of money, but people don't have to do things. Mm-hmm. And they want to do them. Mm-hmm. And her intention always was for the house to be restored to how it was when John lived there and for the story to be told of his childhood up until the point really that music became his journey into the future. She didn't want it being a museum for the Beatles because she understood that Liverpool already told the story of the Beatles but what she wanted was the story behind that story really as far as John was concerned. So, you know, I I thought this was a great thing to do because it it stops the house being just another Beatles museum. Yes, I think it so easily could have fallen into the wrong hands and just yep. been turned into a generic Beatles museum. But I think that's why it's something really quite special. Um, yes, because Paul's, you know, Paul's is the same. It's, yes. You know, Paul's, Paul's has the magic of Michael McCartney's photographs inside it as well. How did you approach taking Yoko around? Well, you don't really. She she kind of... <laughs> she took out. you? Yeah, she took me, really. And um, it was very interesting. You know, she, she told me, you know, that John told her that this was the house, this was the room in which he did his dreaming as a young boy growing up, how special certain rooms were to him particularly his bedroom um that she never been in the house with john that she'd sat outside and he talked to her about it when she and he uh, and her daughter kayoko came to the house um, and and julian uh, in the 60s mm. and how he'd um waxed lyrical about growing up there and how much it meant to him she talked to me about the paintings that she donated to the house of John's that were in the dining room, how it showed what talent he had at a young age, you know, things like this that she would talk to me about. Who else have been your favourite guests to accompany around Mendips? Well, I mean, people from all around the world, you know, it's it's not just celebrities. Yeah. It, they, I mean, uh, my one of my favourite celebrities, Jackson Brown, um, have a great affection for Jackson Brown. He's been two or three times with various members of his band, and he knows a great lot about John. Bob, Bob Dylan has been, was, I think, I mean, for me, Bob Dylan, <clears throat> an absolute incredible artist. You can't escape how incredible those moments were but just regular folk you know you see people mothers there who my wife Sylvia and I were there one day when a mother came to the house because it had been her promise to her son who died in the army serving and she promised him that he that she would visit John's house And she was honouring his memory by doing so. So moments like that just remind you how John Lennon, particularly with his message of peace, has touched people, their hearts, and meant something to them beyond the music. So you can't escape that. And it's always a reminder, as you're reminded every day, why that house means so much to people and and how, how much John is a force for good in the world. You know, how, the, how much the Beatles are, you know, music, it brings people together. It's about joy, it's about love. It's also about remembering, you know, how good the world could be if we all just um, stepped back sometimes. Have you noticed over the years uh, the guests have changed at all or the questions people ask have changed or has it always been a huge mixture of people different ages and cultures mm. and backgrounds no it's it's pretty much remained the same you know people people come for a variety of reasons it's not always the most obvious reason that they they come for i, I remember a japanese lady 
two ladies actually came in full Japanese national costume. And um, yeah, you know, they, they were honoring John. And, um, and this lady waited very patiently whilst I gave my tour. And then as soon as it was over, straight up to John's bedroom. And I heard this loud wailing and I went up and she was prostrate on, 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 the, on the bed. And she said that when she'd been a little girl, her life had been very, very difficult, very hard. And one of the things that had helped to get through that was the music of John Lennon. Not, not the Beatles, the music of John Lennon. Mm. And she got to honour him. So what can you say, you know? You never, never know. But uh, the majority of people are there because they love the Beatles. They love the songs. What's your favourite part of the house? The morning room. I love the morning room where Sylvia and I used to have breakfast because I knew that's where John would have his meals. And um, it's the family room. It's where you sit, where you talk, where you look out on the garden. You might see a robin or a blackbird or a mm. squirrel or actually a fox occasionally. Um, I remember sitting there one time, fox looking in at us and us looking at the fox. And <laughs> that, was, that was magic. What's the plan of the garden? Is that as it would have been? Yes, they're, they're rejigging the garden a little bit now as, as I speak. They've um, cut back some of the plants at the back and are, have exposed where the elm tree would have grown that, in which Uncle George built John's treehouse. So mm-hmm. I think there's plans for that, but I don't want to say too much. Oh, oh okay, okay. Um, I can't move on without asking you a little bit about meeting Astrid and Klaus. Um, what was that experience like for you talking to them? In Germany, it was mm. wonderful Wonderful people who welcomed me into their homes, actually. Um, and to, Astrid was just lovely. She, very unassuming, spoke so tenderly about Stuart. Mm. Still, obviously, very much in love with him. She showed me her wallet, I guess, um, pocketbook, whatever you might call it, in which there was still a photograph of Stuart, and um, answered every question that I put to her. And then at the end, did say to me, whatever photograph you'd like for your magazine, you can have the use of an I will donate some photographs as prizes if you want to run a competition. People will have a signed black and white. I mean, <laughs> this was in 2002, I think, 2003. Wow. I mean, it was incredible the generosity <laughs> of, of her to do this. And these were, the magazine was, a, was bigger than, say, Mojo or, it was a Big, slightly bigger size, and these were reprographed really beautifully. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd taken a magazine to show her, so she'd seen the quality. And I, I was just taken away, and she she said to me that, as far as she was aware, the Beatles didn't write songs, which staggered me. <laughs> At the time, when I first knew them, I didn't know that they wrote songs. It wasn't until we got an acetate of love me do of course or a, a promo copy whatever that we we realized that they they wrote their own songs <laughs> i remember making a, a curry for klaus at mendips one night he yeah. said it was the best curry he'd ever had and i believe him <laughs> me too what type <laughs> of curry was it <laughs> it was sainsbury's best <laughs> <laughs> that's a good endorsement isn't it <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, we won't tell him. <laughs> no, we won't tell him. Let's talk about. Well, you have two wonderful books. Uh, the song the Beatles gave away, which to me is a fascinating alternative history, almost of the Beatles about 
songs that they wrote and or they gave to others or ended up in other hands. Tell yeah. me about the documentary with the one and only Bob Harris that kicked well, off this whole project. Well, we, we did a, we did one called The Day John Met Paul, and that won a Sony Award. And um, You can still very- find that on YouTube, by the way. It's still out there. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a nice one. Again, it's got one or two errors in it, but it's a nice, warm documentary. Most of it is on on the on the ball because it's Paul really and the Quarrymen. Bob said to me, "Have you got any other ideas? We could do something more about the Beatles because he enjoyed working with me and I enjoyed working with him." And I didn't want to. I couldn't think of it. I said, "Well, the one thing I've always wanted to do is." There's this cache of songs that the Beatles gave to other artists and they never recorded themselves. And he said, that's a great idea because it gives us all the music and we've got more artists than we'll be able to cover in an hour, which is what we did. But we got these beautiful interviews with Sir Paul, with George Martin, with Scylla Black, with Mary Hopkin, with Jackie Lomax, with you, know, you name it. And we could have done 26 interviews, uh, programmes. Yeah. So I said to Bob and Trudy, his wife, I'm going to write the book if you don't mind. And they said, no, because they haven't got the time they were doing. They said, no, if you'd like to you have our permission to use the interviews. And some of these interviews I'd done at Mendips. I'd, I'd, in my spare time, I'd interviewed people at Mendips, like Billy Hatton, Jackie Lomax, and people like that. Uh, they'd come up and, and neither of them were with us anymore. That's where the inspiration for this came. And that's why some people said, oh, you, 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 some of the interviews with the artists that you've gone off the point, you know. You'd, and I, I thought, well, it's the last interviews they gave. Yeah. So I have included more than was necessary out of respect for them because it's the last time most probably anybody will interview them or last time their stories will be told in, in this kind of depth. So it's my tribute to the Beatles. It's my tribute to the 60s. It's it's just my book. I'm getting the feeling that other people have enjoyed it as well. And that's all that matters to me. I certainly did. I had this long before we ever first happened to meet. No, right. Um, so it, it's a wonderful read. I, and as you say, it's it, it was new information to me. Um, and as you say, it's capturing interviews with people who are no longer with us. Um, mm. And sadly, from that era, that we need to get these stories down. Yeah, so... In, in the future, somebody can come along to my book and I wouldn't mind if they edited some of the, you know, retail. I, I don't mind, but I've got it out there now and it's, it's, it, it can sit on a library shelf and be used by who, whoever to, to retell and, you know, but it, it's out there. It's not just sitting on my computer. So that's, that, that to me was very important. And I know it was important also to, um, uh, Rita Kelly, because some of these people she knew, like Billy Hatton um, wanted, and, and Jackie Lomax in particular. So, um, yeah, and Tommy Quickly. I did an yes. interview. Who were your favourite interviews for compiling this book? Who, who really surprised you or interested you? Well, beyond Paul and George. Yes. Um, Billy Hatton was lovely. He and I became good friends very briefly. Sadly, he died. Mm. He was always fun, always fun. Um, Jackie Lomax was very nice, very not was at all what I thought. He, I thought with him working for Apple and being with George Harrison, he, but he was very down to, yeah, very nice man. Very, very sweet, yeah, it was very nice. But I think spending that time with Astrid yeah. and Klaus was wonderful. Mm. I don't realise how lucky I was. Colin and I then got chatting about his second publication, Prefab, which is the memoir of Colin Hanton, who was the drummer of The Quarrymen, which has now been turned into a documentary, which is set for general release this year. And now Colin has an utterly unique story. Uh, Obviously, he was the drummer for The Quarrymen, 
Um, but he was there at three pivotal moments, really. He was mm. there the day John met Paul. He played with John Paul and George the first time they performed at the Cavern. And obviously he was there performing on, in spite of all the danger, the first mm -hmm. record uh, that John, yeah. Paul and George cut together. It's yeah. a captivating story. It's it's an amazing social history, but also just to get this perspective on the early history of John in his musical career. Mm -hmm. Why did it come out then? Why 2018? Why was then the time for Colin to tell his story, do you think? Well, I think it suddenly just dawned on dawned on him, really. You know, you, you live your life and you go through your life. And, and then suddenly you think, maybe I ought to do something about this. I've been meaning to do something about this. But he he, he said to me, I'd like you, if you wouldn't mind, would you help me? Would you work with me to write my memoir for my granddaughter? So my granddaughter, mm. what I got up to when I was her age. Because I think you realise that maybe your grandkids in particular may not fully understand what was going on 70, you know, 60, 70 years ago. Mm. And they may not come to that until maybe you're not around, you know. Um, he wanted it to be documented from his point of view and not the standard quarryman interview point of view, because when they're interviewed, they all give their answers and they're, they're, they're into a routine, really. And he said, you know, I don't, I, I do have a slightly different perspective. And I was the one who, out of Len, Rod, Eric, Pete Shot, I actually played with that band longer. I know Pete Shot was around in John's life for longer, but as a performer, I went beyond 57. And the others didn't. He said, and, you know, I, I have my memories and I want them put down. And if I leave it much longer, I'm going to forget them. So he said, would you, because he knew I wrote and he and I get on, got on, get on. We've got a bit of an interest in Liverpool's history, you know, the mm. war, that stuff. And we both support Liverpool Football Club helps. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I said, yeah, I, um, I took a time to think about it actually because I thought it's a bit of a responsibility but I didn't want I, I I said to him I don't want just those stock answers that I hear you give you've got to give me more than that otherwise there isn't a book yes you've done an incredible job on it because it's so colorful and evocative of a time and a place um, no, thank you very much I I also think it's impressive the clarity that Colin remembers things as well, um, although I'm sure you had to piece things together quite carefully. Obviously, date, dating certain gigs and things is very difficult because they just weren't documented at the time no, when they, these things they, were going on. The timeline was difficult because he he could remember the gigs and he could remember them quite clearly, but he couldn't always remember the chron chronology. And mm. You know, I, I, I realised early on that the chronology was going to be difficult and accepted that we may just have to be vague about that. But the important thing was to get the gigs documented and and to own up to that in the book to say, you know, that we don't know f for sure when exactly this gig happened. It could have happened before or after. Um, and the the... The other thing was that, yes, Colin, Colin had most probably told all of these stories before, but he'd never put some flesh on the bone and he'd never attempted to bring them into a, a chronology. And and um, so it w was difficult. Sometimes he, he, he complained occasionally that I was giving him homework. <laughs> he'd say, I, I, I've got homework. And I said, well, what you've given me isn't, isn't enough, Colin. Yeah. <laughs> have to go home and think about it and um he he wasn't really complaining it it was mock complaint really i think he actually was enjoying it and he, he realized that i was taking it seriously and and um i think he was pleased about that mm. We had a lot of fun. We we laughed an awful lot doing this book because it, it was funny. And um, he, at first, he couldn't remember anything about school. Couldn't remember anything about school. I said, well, how can we write about school if you can't remember anything about school? He said, don't, don't remember anything. And then it started to come out that he, he didn't remember too much about school, but he did remember 
how awful the, the punishments were at school. Was there anything that surprised you about Colin's story? Well, I mean, the fact that it was more violent than I, I'm, I went to a school where we did get cane, but it wasn't quite as violent as, mm. as his. I thought that was quite quite something. I think um, the lack of education. Mm. He was a boy who left school with no qualifications. He went into, um, you know, upholstery, became an apprentice. And I went to a secondary modern. But we we did get a shot at some O-levels. I was just that bit older than him. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I, I think uh, the fact that... Um, his mum did take him down and buy him the, the drums. That was quite remarkable. It showed, yes. it showed a faith in him, uh, you know, that they would do that. They would spend that amount of money on them when they possibly hadn't got that much money. I thought that, that, would, that was uh, very important for Colin, wasn't it? Becoming part of the band because so few kids had a drum set. Drummers yeah. were in demand. No, it was a leap of faith in him. I think shown by his mum, you know, and that that was something that was something else, as Eddie Cochran would say. Yeah, that that was that was quite interesting for me. Yeah, going to the he reminded me of how important going to the cinema was for 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 people for us kids, and you know, going to the cinema was a big big deal, much more important than buying records and things in those days. At that point. Yeah, he said a lot of his influences came through various films that he'd seen, musical influences too, obviously. Yeah, yeah, the big musical bios were quite important. Big band, big band, you know, people like Glenn Miller, people like that, those kind of stories. But it was America. America came at us through the cinema screen. That's what it was all about, you know, whether it was Westerns, detectives, um, you know, we 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 were hooked on on Hollywood via the big screen and the you, you, and um, you can sometimes um, have a rose tinted is it what they call rose tinted view of the past and um, but some cinemas were magnificent they were as they said picture palaces. That's a really interesting point you make about rose tinted because with Colin when he's recollecting his time with John and with the Quarrymen it. it it doesn't seem rose tinted. It's just very straightforward. I mean, he does talk about how important he feels it was now and how lucky he was, but he tells it in in what seems to be a very genuine, honest way. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't make it out to be more than what it was. You know, some lads making music, having fun, um, and some of it doesn't sound as much fun as you might no. think. It some of it sounds like running for your life literally because when you get outside of those uh, dance halls uh, uh, some teddy boys might have been iron you up ready to give you a, a, a damn good whacking as george might say a beating because they think you've been looking at their girl you know john squinted he wouldn't wear his glasses and so he squinted they they think he's given looking at their girlfriends or giving them a bit of a Come on, then. You know what? Who do you think you're looking at? Yeah. And he wasn't. He wasn't. He got. They got the wrong impression. But he wouldn't back down too much, John, either. So, um, so <laughs> you never, never knew what was coming at you from the audience, really, as a band. And um, but something was driving them on to to perform in front. I mean, they called one gig the blood down in Garston, the blood baths. You don't get that reputation for nothing. Yeah. I think um, once Paul had joined, it was very interesting to read the descriptions of him because they really echo what we've seen most recently of Paul in Get Back. You know, that driving force, the guy that goes, "Okay, come on, we're going to go and cut a record and we're going to go and do this. Very decisive and very focused even then in those early days. Yeah, I I think that's true. I think... um, he he always had that motivation to push, to move things along, to get the best you can out of a situation in a band. 
And he, he um, I think he could see the shortcomings of the quarryman right away. And that wouldn't sit right with him because if you, if you want to get on in the music business, you can't carry people. You can't have passengers. And, um, and he may not have kind of recognised that outwardly, but he, he would know what was good or bad about a band and, and how they would have to remedy that. And I think, you know, George Harrison was the same. You know, George did say, you know, when I joined the Quarrymen, you know, there, there were some people in it who weren't that good. And um, and they would know what they would have to do if they want that band to move on. I mean, I know from managing bands that it, it's difficult because sometimes you know there's somebody who, well, there could be a better guitar player if we if we had X, you know, and that would we'd be able to do this, we'd be able to do that. Or, you know, why isn't a great singer? Mm. Why do we let him sing? And, and stuff like that. So Paul was prepared to ask these questions, these kind of questions. And to, by asking those questions and making decisions on them, you move the band on. And that's what happened with the Quarrymen. Yeah, and that was without Colin. And then... Sadly, at the end, he puts his drums away and then doesn't look at them again for several decades. Do you know what it what was it an anniversary that made him get the drums back out again? I think it was um, the 40th anniversary of the cavern that they all got back together again. And then I think Gene Catherall, um, I think it was Gene who uh, suggested that they may, may play a gig for St Peter's Church to help raise money for the church roof. I think that was what it was about. So what made you decide to turn the book into a documentary? Well, I wish I could say I decided to do it. It was the book sold to an American tourist here in Walton who came on the tour, who did a private tour with a lady called Jackie and uh, and she um, had Colin on the tour, and she uh, they, I think they went the Penny Lane Development Centre, and Colin, she introduced to him to the gentleman. His name was Mark Bentley, and he came from Florida, and he bought a copy of the book, and he also came on the tour, and he he took the book home and he read it, and then the next thing Colin came round and said, "I'd taken this guy on the tour, Colin, and he liked our book, and he wants to make a documentary." And um, we both kind of had heard that before, you know, about various things. But this guy really meant it. And the next thing we um, we have a meeting, contract is sent over and we go ahead with it. And before we know it, they're over here with a film crew. And um, they're asking if we'll ask certain people to be in the in the film. So this this is from people like Len and mm-hmm. um, Rod Davis uh, and Colin and um, Rod, will they be in it? And then they're getting people like Peter Asher and they're getting people like Billy Bragg, Bob Harris. Are you um, in it? I'm in it. I'm a narrator. I'm in quite a bit, actually, more, more than I thought I would be. And, uh, uh, yeah, they get Joe Brown. Well, I helped get Joe, Joe Brown because they had somebody in it who I felt, well, I felt we should have someone else in it. And, um, and I said... So they said, well, who could you get? And I said, Joe Brown. I didn't know whether I could. (laughs) But I just had a link. And Joe was over the moon to do it. So he did it. We got Arthur Kelly in, um, who used to be George Harrison's friend when he lived in Speed. And we've got got one or two other people as well. So can't say any more. This is incredible. But it's still really Colin's story, isn't it? Oh, the, the whole focus all the way long, because I've I've been involved in the produ- producing of the film, not, not just appeared in it. But Colin is the star of this film. I went to Florida for the film fest. He should have been with me, but he went and caught COVID the oh, night. Oh, no. We, oh, I couldn't believe it. What timing. But he is the star of the film. And it's appeared in the Cleveland Film Festival. And it, it doesn't matter that Joe Brown's in it or Peter Asher, whoever's in it. The focus from opening frame to closing frame is the story of Colin Hunton, mm. the quarryman. It's a pre it's prefab. And other people tell the story. But Colin is the focus and he is the main man. 
What was the reaction at the film festival? They loved it. They got a standing ovation in Florida and um, mm. we sold the most tickets for the festival in Cleveland. So, Congratulations. Yeah, I can't believe it. And um, When can we I, see it here in the UK? Well, we're working towards that goal right now. We, we're that close. It's COVID derailed things for us, I'm afraid, but um, we're back on course now. That's why we've got Florida and that's why we've got Cleveland. Um, we're just sorting out the licenses, the final licenses for permission to use certain songs mm-hmm. and for certain interviews that we filmed to be used. That's what we're doing at the moment. I can't wait to see it on the big screen over here. Um, The trailer is fantastic. I will link to it in uh, this podcast episode so everyone else can see it too. I can't let you go without asking you about meeting Sir Paul. On two occasions, Bob Harrison and I I went to interview Sir Paul and then for songs the Beatles gave away, we also went and invited interviewed Sir George Martin. How did you prepare for those occasions? Obviously, I know you've had a career of speaking to fantastic musicians, icons, etc. But obviously, these must have been quite special meetings for you. Oh, my God, I was so thrilled. I can't tell you. I can't tell you. It was um, to meet Sir Paul McCartney was, you know, let's face it, I'd met Bob Dylan, or I was going to meet Bob Dylan, but to meet Paul McCartney, what can you say? It was one of lifetime's highs to to meet him. It was great. And people always say you don't meet your heroes, don't mm. be going to let you down. But I've I've not been let down by Paul McCartney. He's he's just been everything and more you'd want him to be. You know, he's been great. But just put you at your ease because. He's dead straightforward. Mm. You know, he's sharp. He knows what he's talking about. And um, he's, he's uh, he, yeah, he's just a delight. But he's, you know, he doesn't suffer fools gladly either. You, you, you ask the right question and you get a great response um, and you get the information. And he's inquisitive. He wants to kind of know why you're there. He, he did know that I was the custodian at Mendips. Mm. And so... He did pose me some questions. You know, he wanted to make sure that the front porch at Mendix was still there. And he was asking if it still got an echo, reverb, as he called it. And uh, yeah, so wonderful. And what I liked when I was um, interviewing him for the songs the Beatles gave away, what, what impressed me, he had a piece of paper in his pocket with the songs all written down. He'd been doing some. He had prepared for you. He prepared for, I mean, and, and he's Sir Paul McCartney and he mm. prepared for that interview. He was ready and he had it all in here. Mm. I mean, he would have had it all in here anyway, but he had prepared for that interview specifically. And I was I was in awe. I thought, wow, he's taking this very seriously, which is great because that's what you'd want him to do, what you'd expect him to do. But there was the evidence and um, respect. What more can you have? George Martin was the same. He was very, very prepared. What did you talk to George about? This is for the same book. It was for the same book, yes. And we, um, he was very generous with his time. He talked about the songs the Beatles gave away. And we also talked about the Beatles albums. And he, he gave us his analysis of the Beatles albums and things like that, which is somewhere squirreled away we never used that's something to dig out i think oh yeah <laughs> um what i love uh reading about in prefab is that paul mccartney still name checks colin hanton uh whenever he talks about the quarry men or whenever he sings in spite of all the danger live he always mentions all the other quarry men which i think is just such a really lovely touch yeah i think it is because he, he remembers exactly who was in that studio mm. that john George himself, John Dufflo, the keyboard player, and um, and Colin Hanton. Mm. And he he is fully aware that Colin, I mean, a few years ago, on the occasion of Colin's 80th birthday, Paul was playing the arena in Liverpool. 
and um, and he invited Colin to his show. Courtesy, I, I think, I think of Frida Kelly um, had a, had a word in his ear, but Colin was invited, and during that show, Paul played an acoustic version of "In Spite of All the Danger." And he told the story and he got Colin to stand up in the audience and a spotlight on him and said, happy birthday. And talk. I mean, that is what it means to Sir Paul. I think I think that's credit to Paul, credit to Colin. And he, 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 he met Colin backstage and said hello and introduced Nancy to him. And I think <laughs> you don't have to do that type of stuff. No, no. Colin, I could talk to you all day. Um, thank you so much for chatting with me. I, I cannot wait to see the documentary. I think it's a fresh take on a really exciting era of Liverpool's history, but also the Beatles' history, prehistory. Um, so thank you so much. That's well, been my absolute pleasure and any time. Yeah.